Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. It's a really special edition for a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, it's our episode 90. Um, it's really exciting also because it's the last episode of this year, 2022. Uh, we have a whole bunch of new stuff coming in 2023 when we come back in January. So stay tuned for more announcements on that. Um, and it's also kind of the culmination of two years of Future of XYZ, which was launched in November of 2020. And it's kind of the harvesting right before Thanksgiving. So we are so fortunate uh, to have Renee Giro speak with us about the future of farming right before the, uh, the, the Thanksgiving holiday in America, at least, um, when we're all thinking about, you know, food and family and community and uh, nutrition and all the things that come with it. So Renee runs, um, Renee, first of all, welcome to Future of XYZ. Thank you so much, Lisa. <laughs> um, Renee runs uh, an organic farm here in Northwest Connecticut with her husband, who is a French trained pastry chef. Um, I'm going to let Renee talk about Earth's Palette Farm uh, in, in, in long wind and also tell us how that plays into the future of farming because it really does. But she's also the manager um, of the Northwest Connecticut Regional Food Hub, which is run by a nonprofit and connects farmers with communities in need. Um, and, and these two things, I think, Renee, if I'm not mistaken, really for you are, are, are what the future of farming is about. Um, tell me a little bit in your own kind of mindset. Like, first of all, I mean, you're an organic horticulturist. How, how did you come to farming? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, so I went to school and studied horticulture back in the day in 2001, 2002. I'm dating myself here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I, I got some years on you, girl. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, and so I actually started my career in the greenhouses, growing perennials, annuals, quickly becoming the head grower of multiple greenhouse operations. Um, you know, day after day, week after week, having to don up in a complete hazmat suit to spray chemicals, you know, I kind of thought to myself, there has to be another way to this. And back in 2003, 2004, there really wasn't any organic greenhouse production on a large scale. Um, so I quickly did some research and on my own, um, kind of went out and did some exploratory farming work in out west, came back to New England. Um, and quickly um, started working with an organization called Gilberties in, uh, in Easton, Connecticut. From there, um, I was able to convert the whole system into an organic, um, an organic greenhouse system and the greenhouse expanded over three acres. Um, at that time, that was the second largest organic greenhouse system in the country that was um, had the first USDA organic stamp and label on it. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it was uh, quite a feat. And I kind of didn't really realize what I was doing. I was just listening to that little voice inside my gut. Um, you know, kind I of was obviously well nourished. Yes, absolutely. So fast forward, um, Gilberti's is the largest was at the time the largest um, herb production in the country growing over 300 different varieties of medicinal and culinary herbs. 
And, um, you know, 2007, um, the Great Recession happened. A lot of the farm workers were laid off. Luckily, I was the only one that was kind of kept on board. And so after a lot of thinking as to where the market was going, I convinced the owner of the farm um, to start growing vegetables year round in the greenhouses. So that's kind of how I transitioned you know, from growing and potted plants to actually growing sustainable food. And so, you know, um, if you think about where we live in New England, um, our growing season is so incredibly short. And so with the, you know, coupled with greenhouses and becoming pretty savvy on timing, um, how plants grow and respond to growing in the colder months with very limited um, energy, um, we we're able to grow year round. And so, mm -hmm. You know, after that project was completely successful, I was able to kind of secure this amazing um, opportunity here in Warren, Connecticut, which is now Earth's Pellet Farm. And um, we are a four season farm. So we have four greenhouses that we grow year round in and specialize in controlled environment agriculture. So basically it's um, biomimicry. So everything we grow in soil, um, we use a lot of herbal um, tinctures to nourish the soil that our food is grown in um, and everything is used. So we, you know, we have, we raise about oh, a little over 400 chickens on pasture, pasture, and we harvest all of them and nothing goes to waste. And this is going to sound a little, you know, yuck, but um, you have to understand that everything is used on our farm. So even the chicken feathers to everything after the bird is actually harvested, we take that and we burn it and create another sustainable nutrient fertilizer that again goes back into the soil. So we're really consider, really quickly. I mean, there, there are different terms that are like bantied about in farming. I mean, you know, sustainable and organic being one, which is very popular in consumer trends now, which of course I'm close to. Um, there's also obviously regenerative ag or regenerative agriculture, um, mm -hmm. which is very new. And then there's kind of this circularity, which responds more to um, or a cradle a cradle, which responds more to finished goods. But I, I hear you talking about using everything, which is, of course, the way of the ancestors. Um, right. When you didn't yeah. have you couldn't call Monsanto and order some chemical to, to cure whatever ailment. Um, what is the way that you talk about? farming in this sense like is it sustainable is it organic are there are, what are these words that you like and latch onto the most and why well I feel as though organic is such an overplayed term and the only reason why is because yes it's great to have that in everyone's dictionary but organic actually means made of carbon which is kind of funny um and there's so many different styles of farming but I think the major you know terminology that I like to use is regenerative um, and sustainable because without using and looking at a farm as a whole living you know, organism and to be able to utilize all of that, um, you're not going to have a regenerative or a sustainable farm. You know, if you think of sustainable um, working models, what's a sustainable working model? You know, in business and in, in anything, it's the same as farming, mm -hmm. you know, but the inputs are just a little bit different. So. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And I mean, like, let me talk about the consumer trend piece of this a little bit. And I, I'm going to call it consumer trend, but I actually think it's a positive awareness that's happening that food doesn't come from nowhere. 
right? Yeah. And that this commercial grade farming, the manufactured food industry, I will call it, you know, doesn't necessarily sustain our well-being as human beings. It's it's a, you know, the FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods, consumer packaged goods worlds of the big manufacturers, you know, it's it's industrial level farming. But there seems to be this trend, okay, organic being overused, I agree, um, you know, sustainable being more on the top of mind for the younger generation. I mean, you and your husband, you say you date yourself by being in college <laughs> in like the early 2000s, but the truth is, there's interest in local and organic farming. And there's this generation that, around the world who are going back to the land to do kind of what you and Kevin are doing at Earth's Palette. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you think that's happening and where you're hopeful as we think about the harvest this year that's, that's going to lead us? That's a really great question. So I feel like there's a, a time and a need more than ever to pe for people to really feel connected to not only their food, but their environment. You know, um, even pre-COVID, there was, you know, a huge surge of people wanting to get back to the land, so to speak, um, to really kind of demystify where their food comes from on so many different levels. You know, um, allergies to different foods are, are out of control these days. I mean, I have two kids and you can't have peanut butter. Everything has to be, you know, gluten-free or all of these different things. And that all originates from food. And as parents started to kind of wake up and see, okay, wait a minute, where are these allergies really coming from? And it's how the food is grown and how, you know, these genetically modified um, seeds and plants um, are being processed and being bred in, in different laboratories. Mm -hmm. It's actually doing a harmful effect in our overall microbiome, our overall, um, you know, nervous systems um, and, and our health and our gut health specifically. And, um, and the connection with our mental health, I think is also, we don't need to go there today, but I think that that gut mind connection is very much is part of of the, the, the overall well-being of the human. Absolutely. And then, you know, fast forward to those two years of COVID where it feels like time stood still for everyone. You know, there was even a greater awareness in opening up to where your food comes from. So many people were afraid to go to the grocery store. And so it was just really amazing during, you know, that time to have our doors wide open and just have you know, so many people come to the farm and to be able to explain exactly how your food is grown, you know, to give them just a small glimpse of how to be connected back to the land, um, you know, and it's such a natural primal instinct that we have that's actually, I feel has been, you know, dulled down through humanity because we're so on the go all the time. You yeah. know, we're blindsided by the glitz and the glamour and, you know, the Amazon uh, I have Amazon guilt, I'm not going to lie, um, but you know, it's so easy just to kind of get sidetracked as to what really matters and what really matters at the end of the day is nourishing your body with food. We all need it to sustain and to actually live. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you've, I, I appreciate that. And starting as an herbalist, you know, I think, and this holistic perspective that you take with tinctures and herbs for your animals, for your plants, you know, I think that all makes so much sense. Um, one of the things that's obviously very top of mind, and you talked about in New England, for instance, the shorter, we have a very short growing season, but it's, you know, November now, and we've had this like, you know, two month Indian summer, um, you know, climate change, except for the major deniers of science, you know, we all know is real and, and accelerating. 
Um, how is, you know, climate change affecting the future of farming? And I want to let that lead us into naturally, like, how is, you know, farming going to sustain us as a population um, and, and, you know, having resilient food systems? Right. Um, ooh, so, you know, it's so, that's such a huge topic to talk about. Um, to be quite honest, we can't, forecast our weather patterns anymore and you know being outside and having mother nature pretty much be your boss um we have to be flexible have to kind of go with the flow i mean this was such a horrible season for the drought you know talking with some of my neighbors their wells still haven't even filled up from you know um very very little rain over the summer season and then last year we had one of the wettest coldest growing periods and I can't remember how long um, but you know honestly our one saving grace and I know a lot of other farmers saving grace is um, growing in high tunnels to being able to control in what tunnels? High, tunnels? In high tunnels in greenhouses okay in greenhouses so that way we're able to again control the environment and be able to work with mother nature being able to control you know how much water something gets um how much water something doesn't get um and again it all goes back to soil implementation so composting you know i'm going to use that word um regenerative <laughs> sustainable using you know it sounds so funny but you know the manure that you know is, is produced on the farm um and so i'm a huge believer in small farms are the biggest front leaders of fighting climate change because our carbon input and our carbon footprint is so low yeah and what we're able to produce in return is so high. And so you can't put a dollar value on it, you know? And it's funny, the more farmers, more younger first-generation farmers that you talk to, the more your eyes are gonna open and you're gonna see a high number of them um, popping up all over the place. And their practices are different on, on various farms, but all in all, we all kind of have the same, you know, growing style and growing practices, you know, season extension. Um, composting, um, no synthetic inputs um, into the ground, and our harvests are a lot um, more productive than, you know, um, a commercial farmer or, you know, um, someone who uses a lot of synthetic inputs, i.e. Roundup, um, you know, that actually degrades the soil and doesn't hold on to moisture. Um, you know, liquid fertilizers, uh, various chemical fertilizers, um, so Which pretty are kind much of touted as quick fixes, but we're beginning to learn that, as you just said, they, they decimate instead of regenerate. Exactly, exactly. And so it's almost like, you know, when you're, when you have a chronic illness, the first thing that people tend to do is, is to take medication from their doctors to mask all the problems and not get to the root cause. So that actually is kind of the same thing that commercial farmers do. And so what we're doing is, and a lot of other farmers, and that's the future of farming, and that's what's going to feed, you know, America is um, getting back to the more holistic approach at looking at things, looking at everything as the whole entire body and organism and ecosystem, and to be able to work with all of those changing models and all of, be able to adapt. And all of our answers lie within the plants that are around us. So not only do I like to use herbs and different, you know, um, naturally occurring farm amendments, but weeds are actually a huge piece of how to fix our system. Mm -hmm. So for example, dandelions, super high in zinc and calcium, 
You know, you wouldn't think about that. Um, planting. Well, I do love eating dandelion greens, so. Yes, <laughs> but naturally, you know, naturally occurring dandelions, yep. you know, clover that you see on the grass. So we have to start kind of thinking more outside of the box and looking at weeds too and thinking, okay, they're here for a reason. They're here for a purpose. And the more we dive deep into that, we kind of see how it all fits together, how all of our answers are actually grown naturally within our environment. You, you know, it's, it, I, I love that. You know, my first wake up call um, to, let's just call it sustainability. I, mean, I grew up in Southern California. And even when I was a kid, which was even longer ago than when you were by, <laughs> by quite a bit, you know, we'd have days when the pollution was so bad, we weren't allowed to do PE. And we'd have like, you know, the, if it's yellow, let it mellow, whole concept of like water conservation. Um, but my real waking moment came right before the Great Recession few years before that in fashion, but like being in Singapore. And I also read Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, which largely talks about systems, you know, and, and, and how one used to farm and how now with the amount of food, meat that the world eats, not just Americans, you know, this is creating this kind of knock-on effect for commercial farming, you know, kind of taking out of the system and putting everything into imbalance. You guys also at Earth Palette you farm animals. I mean, you, you mentioned the chickens, but you also have, you know, you have ducks and you have Berkshire pork and you have honeybees and you have all sorts of other things and you have wool from the sheep. And, you know, you kind of have this, uh, you know, a menagerie of a, on a 40 <laughs> acre farm, which is very small. You right. have everything. I mean, I'm seeing that more and more. You also come from a French background. Your husband is French. You guys spend time there. You studied in Japan. Um, how do you see kind of other places in the world influencing, you know, kind of this movement in the U.S. and are they doing it better or is it kind of the same, same everywhere and we all have to move more closer to the land? I think it's a collective consciousness, honestly, in different parts of the world, there's different, you know, tips and tricks um, on how to grow more sustainably. But again, that's, that's the environment that they're in. So, you know, organic farming in South Africa is going to look very different than organic farming in Germany. Mm -hmm. You know, but the concept and the ideals are, are pretty much the same and they're there. Um, you know, it's funny. I think, what is it? Pre-World War II, everything was grown organic. Yeah. You know, when you think about that, it's kind of like, wait, what? And everyone had their own kind of vegetable patch before Everybody. urbanization, right? <laughs> As well, before everyone moved to the cities, you'd have your own plot and you'd grow your own, harvest right. your own kind of, and then we're seeing this more, right? Urban co right. coops and things like that. Right. And so actually it was huge for there to be more um, animal protein farms, large animal protein farms on a smaller scale. I'm not talking, you know, 2000 hectares of um, cows. I'm talking like, you know, one family having, you know, a herd of 20 to feed the town. Yeah. Um, and though everyone had their own vegetable garden, there was a whole barter and trade aspect to that. So it was really community driven. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a small community over in Europe where it's a, it's really a beautiful model. There's about six different families who grow different things and they each share the milking cow. So, you know, every two weeks, the cow goes from the different farm to then feed those six families the milk or cheese or butter that comes from the cows. So, you know, 
I know this sounds like such a Girl Scout thing to say, but we really have to get back to community more than ever now to really be able to lean on our neighbors and let go of all the differences that we have because food is the greatest equalizer. You, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I love the Girl Scout kind of way that you come <laughs> across because the, the irony, of course, in all of this, and it's not ironic, but it kind of would be to someone listening, perhaps, Renee, I mean, you spent time working for the very esteemed French chef, Daniel Boulet, in New York City, um, French chef, but based in New York City, as his head farmer. Um, you know, there is a prestige to that role, but also, I mean, an unwavering, I would imagine, commitment and understanding of what quality is, um, um, yes. right? Mm-hmm. How has that kind of experience shaped? I mean, that's for a very exceptional, very small few, the food that he serves. How has that experience kind of shaped your understanding of, 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 of farming and the future of farming? Um, quality of inputs to the soil, timing of of harvesting. um, Those are two key important things. You know, even um, letting, let's, for example, what I learned is um, how weather really, how weather really affects the taste of a vegetable. So, you know, beets and carrots that were kissed by the frost, for example, have a deeper, richer, more sugar content. um, And therefore that would set center stage versus, you know, carrots that are harvested in the dead of summer um, with very little um, kind of bland nutrient inputs, the taste and the texture and all of that isn't going to be as pristine. So there's different different tips and tricks that I learned that by seeing the food being processed and displayed in such a beautiful way to be able to take that and bring it back to the fields was something that, you know, were huge key takeaways for, for me. It's it's amazing. Well, as we start to wrap up, I mean, this is the Thursday before Thanksgiving in America. It is the harvest season or we're coming towards the end of it. I mean, obviously, uh, notwithstanding the uh, horror show that, you know, was uh, the takeover of the indigenous people's land during the pilgrims' uh, arrival. But at least the story we all were told for a very long time was that, you know, the, the, the Native Americans shared their incredible farming bounty with these, you know, explorers slash conquerors, you know, all of our ancestors and, and, and came together at the table, which is of course what Thanksgiving is about. It's about what you talk about. It's about community. It's about, you know, bringing the bounty of the harvest that is, comes from farms, frankly, and, and nowhere else. Um, what are you excited about this Thanksgiving as you look towards the future of farming? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, what, 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 what do you, what do you, what do you, yeah, what are you excited about or what are you thankful for? I'm overly grateful for my community. And I know that sounds so cheesy, but um, that I've really embraced our, our lives here and are so encouraging for us to keep going and to see them every single week with, you know, open arms and hugs and just gratitude for everything that we're doing as my two kids are running around like crazy animals and my husband's stumbling out of the house with fresh baked croissants and we're just, we're a circus. And I'm so glad that everyone has the patience and the understanding and um, so many other farmers in the area 
um, I'm so incredibly grateful for them um, that everyone is, is choosing to work together to be able to put the finest food on everyone's um, dinner table. Um, well, we are all grateful up here in Northwest Connecticut that you and so many other small farmers are, are, are doing that because it makes our lives so much better. Um, Renee, thank you for joining us on Future of XYZ and sharing your incredible breadth of knowledge and expertise. Thank you so much, Lisa. <laughs> um, and happy Thanksgiving, everyone, whether you're in America or whether you're abroad. The sentiment of being thankful is something we all need more of these days. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Future of XYZ is going on holiday break. I am grateful for that. Uh, I am grateful for all of you tuning in and subscribing these last two years to 90 episodes as of today. Um, we are coming back in 2023 with some very exciting uh, episodes, as well as changes to the schedule and a new distributor partner, uh, for which I am most grateful. So stay tuned. And in the meantime, catch up on everything uh, you might not have seen. Uh, you can visit future-of.xyz to access all the podcast platforms, as well as YouTube, um, and to nominate yourself or someone you know as a guest for 2023. Um, Renee, this was really a gift uh, for Thanksgiving, the future of farming. Thank you again, and everyone, happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co, an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Thanks for listening to The Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to the Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.